Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, September 22nd. We begin with an update on the war in Ukraine. We catch up with Andrew Rusoulis from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute for the latest, including news earlier this week that President Vladimir Putin has plans to call up 300,000 military reservists to bolster the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Then details on the New York State fraud lawsuit of former President Donald Trump and his family. We get the latest from Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Next, it's our monthly conversation with Debra Yedlin, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Deborah breaks down the many challenges currently facing local businesses from record high inflation to rising costs just to keep the lights on. And finally, do our dreams mean anything? We had the chance to discuss the topic with dream analyst and author Lainey Delphin, who explains where she believes our dreams come from. President Vladimir Putin and Russia planning to call up 300,000 military reservists to reinforce the invasion of Ukraine. What does this mean for the war-torn country? With some insight from both sides, we're joined by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning to you once again, Andrew. Thanks for being with us. You're very welcome, and good morning to you, too. Okay, so clearly, uh, if Russia is calling up 300,000 more military reservists, they are in need of military members. This bodes not so well for Russia, but it looks like Ukraine may be getting the upper hand in this war. Is that the truth? Yeah, they have the opera. Ukraine got the uh, operational uh, sort of momentum uh, after their victory last week in taking Kharkiv and the Kharkiv Oblast. Um, so they took the sort of top third part of the of the eastern part of the Ukraine that's under, under war right now. This was a major, uh, A, for the Ukrainians, major uplift in their morale and militarily, very important what they did. For the Russians, a major shock. Uh, and this is not hidden. Russian official media is all over this. They're shocked. Uh, and so the Russians realized that they're on their heels now. Um, the war is not going well. It had gone well earlier in July, blah, 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 but not good now. So they cannot sustain the current rate of combat with the Ukrainians unless they call up the reserves, something that Putin had tried to avoid doing. He tried to fight this with what's called in-place forces. He now has realized he cannot, so he's called for this partial limited mobilization of 300,000. They can go up to 2 million in ready reserves, or, and then they can go up to actually 30 million potential. You know, So this is still a, a portion of what they can do, but it shows they have to do something. The human resources portion, you broke it down for us there, Andrew, but of course within that, uh, you know, you, you might not have willing participants. Uh, we're hearing about these protests and uh, being reported by even the Washington Post that 1,300 Russian citizens arrested for their protests. Could the backlash from the Russian people be the downfall of President Putin? Uh, that's a real step. Uh, that, that's hard to calculate, that one. And there's no evidence to suggest that Putin's regime today, as we speak, is in peril. The thing with the autocratic regimes is they're there until they're not there. Uh, and so there, there's no sort of natural democratic sort of election cycle that you can look for how our government is shifted right and this is sort of like they they hang on and then one day they're not there this is how 1989 the collapse of the soviet union and the warsaw pact that all happened overnight people didn't see it coming so i'm not going to predict to you the impact on putin's regime except to tell you that there's no evidence today as we speak however your point about uh large numbers of russians uh trying to get out of the country demonstrations yes um, this is not a popular war. I mean, Russians were just why Putin has avoided mobilization up until now, when he has no choice now, because most Russians were 
saying, okay, you know, this is your war. Uh, as long as it doesn't affect our lives, uh, we can go about it. Then it's okay. But now it's starting to affect their lives. So this is a shift. Uh, and, and politically in Russia, this is going to be very interesting to watch. Would you think then that Putin might be panicking, or is he still, you know, so crazily confident that it doesn't really matter to him? I think it's in between. I don't think he's crazily confident. I think he knows he's got a difficult problem on his hands, but at the same time, I don't think he's panicking. He's not the kind of a panic guy, um, and and so I think he's he's, he's very serious. Uh, he's worried, and his defense minister, if you watch the clip. On, on the news yesterday, uh, his defense minister is extremely worried. Putin is steely. Uh, he, he, he's, he's, he's basically fighting for his political life, um, but he's determined to do it. Uh, so he's not in a panic. He is girding for the, for the big fight, basically. When you say the big fight, there were, uh, you know, some veiled threats, uh, you know, nuclear weapons mentioned, you know, within portions of Putin's speech. Is this still just rhetoric? Is this still just saber-rattling? Or has that chance increased as uh, the Russians move further away from their main goal? Yeah, no, I think this is very real. Um, and we, But we have to take this into context. Um, what Putin is saying, and this is part of his thing about he realizes things are not going well. So what he's telling everybody, both his domestic uh, audience and, and the external audience, and chiefly Ukraine and the United States, most, most importantly, he's saying, okay, I, we, the Soviet Union, Russia, are a nuclear power, all right? We're a superpower. And superpowers with nuclear weapons do not go down in defeat because we have the, the ability to deter uh, unconditional surrender by virtue of our nuclear weapons. And so he's saying we have them. He's reminding people that. Now, uh, I don't believe he plans to use them, uh, but he, what he wants to do is use that threat essentially, to get the Americans, in my opinion, to pressure the Ukrainians to back off what, what, what would be the existential strategic area for Russia in this war, which is Crimea. It's not the eastern parts that they're fighting over right now, in my opinion. It's really Crimea, the Black Sea Fleet, and what the Russians all regard as being Russia, historically Russia. They, there's a huge distinction between Putin and even the Russian people in terms of how they view Crimea versus the eastern parts of, the, of the Ukraine that they're fighting over now, which they look at Russified Ukrainian lands. But Crimea, they believe, is historically Russian from the time that Catherine the Great took it from the Turks uh, in, the, in the 18th century. So I believe in that sense, what Putin is saying is that we're not going to go down to defeat totally, because Ukrainians have said that is their military objective, to take Crimea. And I think Putin is saying it's not going to happen. We will go nuclear if to defend it, and then he expects the Americans to stop the Ukrainians from doing that. Andrew, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he's been brilliant in keeping his face front and center. He talked uh, about just punishment for Russia over its invasion, asking for the creation of a special war tribunal. Is that something that is likely to happen down the road, or are we just not even there yet? Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. You see, you, I mean, tribunals can be set. There's investigations going on now by the International mm -hmm. Criminal Court. For the, that is ongoing. Mm -hmm. The process of collecting evidence is ongoing. But the trial side, well, you've got to have them in the dock, right? So you've got to have Putin in the dock, right? And in The Hague and so on, for example. Uh, that's nowhere near happening.
uh, at the present time. It ultimately happened in Yugoslavia. You know, after it took years uh, in, in in those trials to get Milosevic and the people who were responsible for crimes there finally in the dock. But it did happen ultimately. Uh, will it happen here? Too hard to tell. But these people, this is, a, again, a nuclear power, and Yugoslavia was not a nuclear power. So uh, I would suggest that that's a way long off. I don't, don't will not predict the future, but I'd say the probabilities right now are stacked against uh, uh, what the Ukrainians are trying to achieve in terms of convictions. Maybe we won't predict the future, but I don't think, I think it's safe to say nobody would, would have predicted seven months ago that we'd still be talking about this. It's, it's incredible nope. in this form. Uh, no, we didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm on record being completely wrong in the early days, although I've kind of straightened things out in the last few months. The last few, cer- certainly since June, I think I've been not too bad. But I think we're still into a slog, and uh, people are now talking about winter war. Yeah, very interesting times. I'm, I'm glad you're all over it for us. Thank you so much, Andrew. You're very welcome. Great to talk to you guys. Andrew Rasoulis, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. New York State is suing former President Donald Trump and his children. With details on this lawsuit, we're joined this morning by Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Hi, Reggie. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Okay, tell us a little bit about this lawsuit uh, background. Where are we at? So this has been a lawsuit that's been underway, an investigation that's been underway for the last three and a half years. And it was actually sparked by the testimony given by Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, when he testified on Capitol Hill in 2019, kind of exposing the inner workings of the Trump organization that sparked this investigation and led to this lawsuit that was filed yesterday, essentially saying that Trump, his kids and the organization overinflated their assets to get better rates when it came to uh, uh, securing loans. And what uh, Letitia James, the New York attorney, general is looking for is a quarter billion dollars in penalties and a forever ban, a lifetime ban on the Trumps being able to run a business out of the state of New York. So there could be some significant uh, outcomes here, but this is a civil trial, not a criminal trial. So it, you know, there's a real chance here that this simply just settles out of court. What has uh, former President Donald Trump said about this? Well, I mean, he went on the attack yesterday. He sat down with Fox News after this lawsuit had been announced, but before the information came out about the DOJ and the Mar-a-Lago search uh, late last night. And essentially, the president says that this is a political witch hunt, that the New York attorney general is simply out to get him playing some video uh, that was from her a couple of years ago, announcing that she was going to sue Trump at some point. These two have been at each other's sides for the last several years. Donald Trump tried to say, look, these are business loopholes everybody does it but ultimately the new york attorney general says sure maybe everybody does it not to this extent and if you do it you run the risk of getting caught and here donald trump is getting caught at one point here guys uh donald trump tried to say that his new york apartment was thirty-three thousand square feet when in reality it's eleven thousand square feet simply so that he could say he had the most expensive apartment into new york so the lawsuit itself does it have legs does it look like this will ultimately you know be something that that trump will have to you know pay the piper on potentially i mean it does have legs in that the numbers are easy to trace especially when you're looking at something like the size of an apartment you can't refute that the numbers are uh, set in stone uh you know this is one of those lawsuits that strikes donald trump where it hurts and that's in his reputation of being a billionaire he's a very vain man so this is something that will get to him it's going to be difficult for this once it gets to court according to legal experts and that's because donald trump is notorious for not using email so paper trails are incredibly difficult to try and come across and a lot of stuff is either written in 
pencil or flushed or shredded. So the paper trail could be difficult. So to finding somebody within the company to turn on Donald Trump. But given the fact that a lot of this information is out there and it's trickled out for the last few years, this ultimately could result in at least a financial penalty for the Trumps. Interesting times. Thank you for your time this morning, Reggie. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. is Calgary's business community navigating inflation and recruiting the right talent? To give us a snapshot of the issues facing Calgary businesses, we're joined this morning by Deborah Yedlin, Calgary Chamber President and CEO. Good morning, Deborah. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us once again. Uh, we're hearing lots, obviously, about uh, jobs that are available, not enough employees. Is this still something we're seeing a big time in the city of Calgary? Absolutely. We actually hosted a policy council roundtable 10 days ago at the Chamber convening business leaders and small business owners uh, across the spectrum, social services to uh, to the private sector, uh, talking about their talent needs and how they're still struggling to find uh, the right people for the jobs that they have available. What a challenging time. We, we talked uh, briefly in the intro there to you, Deborah, in the sense that inflation, we think of it as in our households, but inflation when it comes to these businesses and even the rising cost of energy to keep the lights on. Do you, think you know, it, 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 it's almost like you finished dealing with one fire yeah. with the pandemic and felt like you were sort of the runway was clear. And then all of a sudden that we were dealing with inflation, as you said, we're dealing with rising energy costs, which are really, really high. When you think about how much electricity prices have increased year over year, 200 percent or more, um, that all contributes to the cost of doing business. And when you have a limited amount of capacity to pass those costs on to the consumer, uh, that means that your margins are not going to be as healthy as they could have been. And you were already sort of trying to put things back together as it was post-pandemic. So this is really, it's just, it's, it's causing a lot of concern and interest rates are rising. So that means if you've got debt outstanding and if it's floating, you're going to be more subject to, um, to the rising interest rate environment as well. Are you hearing from businesses that they are at risk of closing their doors at this point or some that have because of, you know, this is just a, we got through COVID and now inflation, affordability issues and all of this. Is this just sort of the last straw? Well, I, I don't, we're not there yet, but I think that it's something that everybody's looking at very carefully and they're going to manage it as best they can. So everybody will manage their costs in the best possible way if they have some opportunity to pass on costs to consumers which is what happens in an inflationary environment, right? You have this cost push inflation that starts to take root. Um, then, you know, they'll be fine. It just could mean that uh, their, you know, their, their, their profit margins won't be as healthy as they otherwise could have been. Can we put our finger on, you know, one factor, Deborah, is the HR factor and the, the you know, having enough staff, number one, or is it the, the cost of doing business? I think it's everything. It's everything from all the inputs that, uh, that you have when you look at it sort of year over year, 54% of businesses are worried about the rising cost of input. So that's everything from labor to energy costs. To, um, and one more thing we haven't talked about is the fact that the Canadian dollar is, quite, you know, is relatively weak. So that means your terms of trade um, is, have uh, gone down because you have to pay more to import goods from the states. So if you're dependent on bringing things in from the U.S., it's also, it's also a challenge. So it, there's, there's one factor, but it's a confluence of factors that are conspiring but certainly if you can't get the labor or if the wage expectations are high that's another issue so there's a lot of factors that uh, businesses have to manage that we really haven't had to consider for quite a while 
and then getting we consumers in the doors as well because we're all having enough of a tough time in our own houses. Right. We are all looking, you know, you look at sort of how you allocate your resources and what what are the leading indicators in terms of where people start to pare back their, their spending. And everything, the, the retail sector is potentially uh, one place where people will consider where they're going to spend. Of course, uh, hospitality, restaurants, et cetera. And when you think about how much uh, the hospitality sector itself was affected through the pandemic, I'm sure that this is just one thing that they're really hoping that people don't pull back in terms of what they're spending because this has been a tough sector to come back. This is your chance, Deborah, to, to get people, you know, interested in perhaps in connection with the Calgary Chamber because it is such a difficult time. Why should a business, you know, join and spend some time with the resources that you offer at the Chamber? Well, we offer a number of opportunities for businesses, everything from uh, offering programs to help um, manage the business, you know, whatever business environments that you've got that you're dealing with. But also we convene policy roundtables. We also um, hold, host networking events. We have Small Business Week that's coming up. In October, and we're launching a new membership model on Monday morning to sort of reflect the business community, both from from the, the from the corp the big corporate sector, but also from the small business, from the startups, the entrepreneurs, the people that are uh, working on their own, people maybe who retired from the business community but still want to be engaged in events. We've the the business model launches on Monday, and we're looking to really broaden our our exposure and our connection to the Calgary business community throughout the city and in every quadrant. Fantastic. We'll send uh, people, business owners, anyone that wants to get more information, calgarychamber.com. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks. Deborah Yedlin is the president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Is there meaning behind our dreams or is it all nonsense? To help uncover the deeper meaning of our dreams, we're joined this morning by Lainey Delphin, who is the dream analyst. Good morning to you, Lainey. Hi there, Sue. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a fascinating subject. I don't remember my dreams, but is there something behind, you know, for when we do remember specifically, and it's, it can sometimes be in vivid detail, is there meaning behind it all? Yes, and that is my cue to hang a little wallpaper here so all of us are standing in the same room. A dream is actually an interior conversation that takes place between the unconscious and the conscious mind and while I love going deep I'm just going to stay surface here for a minute every dream is triggered by something that either happened to you yesterday or something that you thought about yesterday and it's always something that's bugging you so when you go to sleep at night you prioritize your day in the way of what is bugging you the most and all your dreams tonight are going to be about that specific current issue or person that's bugging you. And we test out different uh, solutions and reactions to the people and events in our life. So what I do, because now the goal becomes, A, what's the situation that made you have that crazy dream last night? And once I understand what, the, what triggered the dream, I can help you uncover what a solution looks like when it comes in the form of a metaphor. Because the solution appears in the dream. You get it first in your unconscious before you get it in your conscious. If you want to quit that job, break off that relationship, 
tell your husband what you didn't say about your feelings. It all happens in the dream first. Lainey, it's interesting because you mentioned that uh, the dreams are basically in reaction to yesterday or, you know, the, you, in, in the past. But when it's unfolding in our dream, to me anyway, it doesn't always seem quite that literal, like the exact same thing that happened to me. So am I looking for clues and the feelings yes. of what happened to me? That's an excellent question, yes. And I often tell my students, I am much more teaching the language of metaphor than I am doing dream analysis. May I give you a very quick dream? And it'll explain everything all in one shot. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a one-picture dream about a woman who got a brand-new puppy. And she is so excited about him because he's so cute and so brand-new. All she wants to do is put him up on the table so she could look at him eye-to-eye. And so that's what she does. So I'll just interrupt myself to tell you I developed a six-point-of-entry method that anybody can use to uncover why you had that dream. They are the feelings, the action, the play on words and puns, the symbols, the repetition, and the plot. So she said she put the puppy up on the table, and she's so happy looking in his face, and all of a sudden he poos all over the table and all over her. It's up and down her arms. And so I used the feelings and the plot as a point of entry, and I asked her, what do you think happened this week, some situation that started out brand new and you were so excited about it, and it took a very rotten turn for the worst very quickly, and she got it immediately. She said, it's the job. I just got a brand new job. I've been working there three days, and I realized the boss is a really abusive guy. And he's pooing all over everybody. We all know that expression. Mm -hmm. But now we understand what that dream was about. And once I understood it was about the job, I have several, I have nine different ways of finding solutions. My favorite is to take the dream outside and solve the puzzle in waking life. So I asked her, if you really had a puppy and you really put him on the table and he really made all over the place, what would the solution be? And she said, the first thing I would do is take it off the table. And when I asked her what that means, she realized immediately, she said, when I take something off the table, it's no longer negotiable. I'm done. She left my office and she quit the job. There you go. That really explains it quite nicely, doesn't it? Okay, so I just want to kind of flip back to what I said earlier that I don't remember my dreams. I know I'm dreaming. We all dream every single night, correct? So why do some of us remember and, and others not? Well, there's a physiological reason because there's the memory trace in your brain is not working at the same capacity when you're asleep as when you're awake. So it's a physiological reason you you need to have intention and you need to have the interest because as I just explained, that was a one picture dream and it's it's really true that a picture is worth a thousand words. I want to ask you, Lainey, and I, I don't need you to really analyze my dream, but it's a bigger picture. I'll use myself as an example. I'm used to being made an example of. Um, <laughs> Good point. So, Lainey, uh, I will have a very much of a recurring dream. 
in it is like, for example, like Las Vegas, it might be Las Vegas, and I'm not a huge Vegas fan. I don't gamble, but I'm always going to this same kind of a resort of, you know, tons of, you know, places to stay, buffets, oddly enough, uh, casinos, lots of action. I'm going to this same place almost every night. And it has been a couple of years for me. I have this recurring dream that my dreams are going to take place in this town. So what, what does a recurring right. dream and so mean? If, it, if it's been going on for a couple of years, a recurring dream that happens, if you would have said to me, I had it seven times in the last two weeks, mm-hmm. that is pointing your attention. That's your unconscious successfully grabbing your attention about a waking life issue that you are not paying attention to and your unconscious is always looking after you and it wants to grab your attention but the kind of recurring dream that you're talking about that goes on for years is different that is a favorite expression so if my favorite expression is oh darn it I could have said, oh, darn it, 50 years ago because I missed the bus. And I could have said, oh, darn it, about 15 minutes ago when I realized I better get into my office. So we're talking about two incidences completely not related that happened 50 years apart, but they both fit, oh, darn it. And so your expression, I mean, I'm just going to take a guess because all I can do is project. After all, it is your dream. Mm -hmm. And you cannot look it up in a book. You have to buy my books, which are not a dictionary. They teach you a method instead. But if I was dreaming about Las Vegas a lot, I'd be asking myself, "What what am I gambling on this week? What am I taking a chance on? And so you could ask yourself, What comes to your mind when you think about Las Vegas? And then you can change that question next time you have that dream Mm. and say, what's going on this week that feels like I'm gambling? Oh, interesting. Mm. I want to ask you, because this is something that people always want to know the truth about. If you die in your dreams, do you die in real life? No, and my favorite one of that example is this... um, New York City uh, news anchor um, on Good Day New York dreamt that she fell off a building and hit the ground in the dream, and then she got up and walked away. And that was a comment about her personality that when she hits the bottom, she knows how to pick herself up and carry on. Mm. So the answer to your question is it's not true. I could also say to you, using play on words and puns, I was so embarrassed, I thought I was going to die. If you speak that kind of language, don't be surprised if you go to sleep tonight and you dream that you're dying or you died. And it's not about that. You're talking about the fact that you were so embarrassed the day before. Okay. Wow. Can, can we program our, de- our dreams, Lainey? Can we decide what we're going to dream on and set ourselves up to take that path before we go to sleep? Andrew, I mean, I have a, I'm partial to Andrews because I happen to be married to one. (laughs) But that was a great question. And that is called incubating a dream. And the best way you can do that is while you're lying in bed, get the feeling that the situation gives you. Even if it makes you tense or sad or aggravated, fall asleep with the feeling the situation gives you and ask yourself for a solution. And I promise you, you're going to get one.
Well done, Andrew. Okay, I've got a final question. It can't top Andy's, I'm sure. But if I can't remember my dreams, can I make myself start to remember my dreams? Yes. If you go to either thedreamanalyst.com or you go to haveagreatdream.com, look up my tidbits. And the dream tidbits, which are also on YouTube, are each less than 55 seconds. And if you watch tidbit one and two, I'll teach you how to remember your dreams. All right. Right there. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, Andrew, can I give you an afterthought on your gambling dreams? Sure. Well, I don't gamble. What I'm saying is I find myself. No, I meant. I I get it in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. I meant Vegas. Yeah. Because uh, during the commercial, I was thinking to myself, it seems so reasonable and apt Mm -hmm. that living the life that you are living, I mean, you are on stage. And so every day, and so it seems very reasonable to me that you would use that as a backdrop because it perfectly reflects Mm. the life that you're living anyway. Yeah, well, I guess you're spending every night in Vegas is there could be worse places to spend it. So in my mind, if I'm at these resorts, and it's, it's bizarre, but I appreciate that. And I'll be checking out thedreamanalyst.com to try to dig into that. Thank you so much for your time, Lainey. We appreciate it. It's so my pleasure, you guys. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. That is Lainey Delphin, the dream analyst. You can keep them coming if you have a, an interesting dream that reoccurs or something that you don't understand mm. why you're dreaming about it. And you do gamble every time you come on the radio. That's a very good point. Maybe not with money, <laughs> but with my reputation and dignity. That's right. Yeah.